From the high desert in Far East West Texas, this is the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with that sports TV ratings. Hi, I'm Robert Seidman and I have a little bit longer intro than normal for this episode with Jamel Hill. Back when I was first starting this podcast, I'd envisioned having Jamel on sometime in the fall of 2017 after I've been at podcasting for a few months. And my um, thinking back then was we would talk some SC6 and some SC6 ratings, but that I was going to spend a good 15 minutes praising fried chicken, but also giving Jamel a hard time for so many food tweets and so many tweets about fried chicken while I was trying to lose 60 pounds. And despite Jamel, I did lose the weight and I've now kept it off for over a year. Uh, but before I could get uh, three months of podcasting under my belt, Charlottesville happened. And then the uh, Trump and NFL related tweets happened. And one thing I, I really want people to understand is the, you know, the way that I initially experienced uh, Jamel and Michael Smith, too, uh, was as very fun people. I, you know, I, my initial exposure to them was from the ride home shows. And then uh, I'd see him on Numbers Never Lie and His and Hers, where I always found Jamel and Michael smart, energetic and fun, fun, fun was a big part of it. Uh, but uh, Charlottesville, that was not fun, and neither were the Trump tweets. And uh, then on top of it, John Skipper left ESPN. Jamel and Michael Smith ultimately left the 6 p.m. Sports Center. And uh, within the last few weeks, Jamel and ESPN have had an amicable parting of the ways. And uh, someday under his best-selling author moniker, James Andrew Miller, my friend Jim Miller will hopefully write a sequel to his Those Guys Have All the Fun ESPN book that uh, does the SC6 period at ESPN complete justice. In the meanwhile, you can get a pretty good version of it already by listening to the first and fifth episodes of Jim's Origins chapter on ESPN. Uh, those episodes cover social media and Sports Center, And uh, also be sure to check out the uh, Origins Originals interviews uh, from that chapter with Jamel and Michael Smith. And also be sure to check out uh, the podcast Richard Deitch did with Jamel this past Tuesday, October 9th, 2018. It's a 70-minute podcast uh, where Jamel talks in a lot of detail about her exit from ESPN. And uh, someday I hope to have Jamel back on the podcast so I can appropriately bust her chops about adding additional challenges to my weight loss efforts. Uh, but Jamel has had to deal with some serious stuff, and I wanted to talk about some of that stuff, and I wanted to take it seriously. So now on to the podcast with Jamel. Hi, I'm Robert Seidman, and joining me today is Jamel Hill. Jamel, welcome to the world's fastest-growing sports media podcast with Ed Sports TV Ratings. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate you having me on. Um, I'm sorry it took so long to do it. And I know you're saving all the good scoops for my friend Jim Miller, uh, but even if it pains me a little, I have to show some love to Richard Deitch. And uh, as I said in the intro, his recent podcast with you was great. But I have this memory that uh, R.D. kind of called what happened with SC6 before it ever even aired. And uh, my memory is he wrote, said, tweeted something like, I'm worried that Michael Smith and Jamel Hill are being set up for failure. And I always interpreted that. And I want to be very clear. These are my words, not Richard's. But I always interpreted that as uh, there's no issues with having two African-American hosts of the 6 p.m. Sports Center. Uh, but I'm just not sure everyone in Bristol, let alone the rest of the U.S., is ready for the fabric of Sports Center's DNA to be fiddled with. And to, to me, it looks like like it played out exactly like that. And in your shoes, I'd have definitely been worried ESPN wasn't going to be able to deliver on that. But I don't think I would have been able to pass up on the opportunity over that worry. And uh, I'm just wondering if, if separate from all the Trump Twitter stuff, do you feel like that's how it played out? Did RD get it right? Well, um, I, I'll say this. When we went into it, you know, nobody starts something with the intention of it not working sure. or um, it failing. And 
every indication that we got when we started um, the SC6 is that we were, you know, we would have full support. We'd have a lot of creative control. We were going to be able to chart our vision of what we thought Sports Center um, should be. Uh, it wasn't that far uh, before us that Scott Van Pelt had started his sort of version of Sports Center. Um, but even though Scott's version is obviously different than than what Sports Center kind of had been, had you know such a, a great late night feel to it, you know a, a little more casual in terms of vibe. It was still a lot like Sports Center in the sense that. Um, you know, you can. There was an expectation to highlight simply by time of day, and you know, people who had uh, you know been watching Sports Center for years were obviously very familiar with Scott, and you right. know, he's one of the most recognizable faces of that brand. So when we started it, I mean, our goal was to make it, you know, his and hers with a touch of Sports Center. Right. <laughs> That's kind of how we looked right. at it, and everybody was fully kind of on, on board with that, and. One thing that we discovered, independent of, um, you know, the creative issues that we would kind of later run into, is that the, the, the viewer itself was very accustomed to traditional sports center. Right. And it would be very fascinating with me. I'd have these conversations with people in the street, and they'd say to me, I love you and Mike. I love you guys on his and hers. I don't like you on sports center. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't understand what that means. Like, if you like us – you should be good with wherever we are. And they're like, no, I just want highlights when I go to Sports Center. And it was such a f- funny conversation to have with people because if you recall, one of the um, narratives that I know they tried to push at FS1 as they tried to compete with ESPN was that Sports Center and highlights were dead. That right. was the trope, yeah. yep. right? Yep. And I can tell you I found the exact opposite doing that job. But here's the trick. And you know this is somebody who's very savvy about, you know, TV and understands things. There's nothing I can show you at six you haven't seen. Right. You're either showing things from the night before, or you are looking uh, forward to that eat that night's uh, sporting event, which hasn't happened yet. Yep. So what are you seeing new and fresh video-wise that you have not seen? And it reminded me a lot of the angst that people had with newspapers. I mean, the Internet was in full swing, and newspapers are still running game stories. Like, yep. people are waiting at the end of their driveway yep. to see who won. Yep. And in a world where you're competing, you know, not just with other networks and um, and you're at 6 and you're competing with the 6 o'clock news evening, evening cycle, you're also complete competing with the Internet and aggregated highlight uh, feeds like, you know, House of Highlights and Bleacher Report and all these other entities that are getting out highlights in real time and teams and leagues themselves. That's what you're competing with. So I think it was just for a lot of SportsCenter viewers at 6 o'clock, it was kind of a comfort thing that they it didn't matter if they'd seen it 20 times. Yep. They wanted to see it 20 more. And Mike and I, we really, you know, we weren't – we wanted to show purposeful video, video that told a story. Um, but, you know, highlights, it seemed in some respects like an outdated concept. So um, – at least at six o'clock, not you know for all sports centers, obviously. So it seemed like just by the nature of it, sports center just had to be a little more discussion oriented. So I mean, I could go through a list of things of why things didn't turn out the way that you know we all anticipated. Um, but as you said, so yourself, when you get an opportunity to do the six o'clock sports center, you're not going to turn that down. Right. And um, I'm okay with taking a really big swing and. 
it not working out because um, I think we all went into it with the best intentions. Um, you know, yeah, there was definitely some things we should have done better. It was definitely some things we should have had ironed out before we aired um, the day after the Super Bowl. But, I mean, I think, I mean, I learned a lot about, um, you know, how to do television and uh, certainly anchoring and other things. So um, it just, uh, you know, we just kind of started with our backs against the wall. Yeah. So, you know, this thing where people are just in the habit of the, the 6 p.m. Sports Center being the 6 p.m. Sports Center. And if that means, you know, the same 25 highlights you've already seen, uh, that's what they want. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of people really did expect that. Uh, but that but that is that is clearly uh, a sentiment that's out there. I, I'm just wondering. So so, you know, my sense is that 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 was the challenge for you and that that and that challenge for 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 you for michael and for espn not not any one person but that that was separate i mean that all the trump twitter nfl stuff really didn't have anything to do with it and that the bigger deal was really you know this is this is sports center and people aren't comfortable futzing with sports center well and it was also too i think there were some really silly narratives that got attached to our show and even to us uh, long before the, yep. the Trump stuff yep. um, even came into play. And, uh, you know, to refresh everybody's memory, um, I, I think we're a month or two in, you know, the infancy of the show. And it's always difficult to evolve a show as you're on air in real time. Yep. And, um, you know, because most shows, if you look at when they start, and even Scott Van Pelt told us this, the day you start versus what it, the show will look like a year later is going to be drastically different. Right. Now, of course, when he told us that, we didn't expect that drastic would be neither one of us would be the anchor. <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, he was just talking about generally the evolution that takes place as you learn and get a better sense of what you're doing. But anyway, a couple months in, the layoffs happened. And I don't know how we became the poster children for, you know, how dare these two have these jobs in this position. Right. And, and and all these great journalists, <clears throat> many of which who were our friends, are getting, you know, laid off and let go. And somehow that narrative, you know, became a part of our story. And that was obviously unfair. And I think in some cases it was definitely racially motivated because it wasn't just us. But suddenly, I, you know, when you saw people in social media um, complaining about these journalists that lost their jobs. And again, keep in mind, these are our colleagues and our friends. Yeah. Um, that suddenly Stephen A. Smith doesn't deserve his job and Dan Levitard doesn't de de um, deserve his. Like People were very specifically targeting certain people. Yeah. And um, I found that to be like, you know, fascinating and a lot of people kind of telling on themselves. And because there was obviously an advertising campaign that went along with us, you know, being on SportsCenter, not unique. I mean, every show that's new gets, you know, yep. generally gets promoted at ESPN. Yep. That's kind of the way it works. But, you know, people were doing stories about our ratings like a month in. Yeah. And I've never seen so many people fascinated with the 6 p.m. Sports Center ratings. And all of a sudden we get Me there either, and that's by the all way. anybody Me wants either. to work. Yeah, like I was just like, why is it, why are people suddenly caring so intensely about our ratings? And, you know, then the, the political narrative of ESPN as a whole, and especially our show, was in full swing. Yeah. When anybody who watched our show knew we talked about sports 99.9% of the time. And, you know, I don't know if it is because both of us have been in the commentary space. 
I don't know what it was, but suddenly Mike and Jamel are too political. Yeah. Which I don't know where that came from because, yes, we talked about um, certain you know social issue topics, but always within context of the news. We were yep. not on Sports Center talking about immigration and and voter suppression. Right. We weren't. So yep. I, the people who said that, which is frankly being lazy, and it's so easy. And it's such a low-hanging fruit to call the black people too political. Yeah, yeah. So you know, kind of, kind of along the same lines. Uh, yesterday, you replied to uh, one of my tweets about uh, I won't name any names about the FS1 ratings, and, uh, <laughs> the, and you said that you were trying not to be petty uh, given uh, uh, your scare-quoted failure on SC6. Uh, but I got to tell you, I've always thought uh, you were one of the classiest people out there. Uh, and exactly because of how you handled all of that nonsense. I mean, I I never really saw you act in any petty or classless way. And uh, I know in your shoes, I would I would have scorched some earth for sure. Uh, and, I, you know, I did freak a couple of people out by uh, by going kind of hard at Clay Travis. But I don't think most people have figured it out yet. Uh, even people who actually aren't racist is that the sum total of all that race baiting stuff is what produces stuff like Charlottesville. And in between, you know, there, uh, you know, uh, Twitter and Charlottesville, there's a lot of ugliness, which, you know, uh, people getting shot, death threats, all kinds of stuff uh, that that adds up to. And and I I saw you essentially just handle all of that with with class and grace. How did you how were you able to do that? Well, I mean, it, it does get tough because when you have been discussed and scrutinized and criticized as much as I have, um, you know, at some point it gets old. And, and you know, at ESPN, and understandably so, I mean, definitely uh, the message that you're giving constantly is, is, is don't reach down. And right. um, there's a lot of value, you know, <clears throat> to that because a lot of people who are swinging up you know, to stay with that analogy, is because they need their platforms expanded. They're trying to use your platform and your name to expand their own. And so they sort of live for the moment when you discuss them or you call them out because that's, you know, that's empowering for them and they're able to attract new attention. Yep. And I find that to be disingenuous and just um, weak, you know, frankly. And yep. It's, you know, the whole, you know, people, especially for that particular person you mentioned, his his minions are constantly tweeting me and calling me a failure. And, you know, especially during when I was on six o'clock talking about the ratings. And you know this better than anybody as somebody who studies ratings is that their concept of failure and what failure actually <laughs> is on television is so dramatically different. Um, yeah, Clay. Clay. Often, Clay's pretty quiet now. We. We. I do have to admit that he's not saying yeah. one about anybody's ratings these days. And and the thing is, like, I, I look. I, I wish no ill will on him. Get it how you live. But do realize that if you're going to traffic in that lane, when people start firing back, now you know how it feels. And all I know is my failure was a half a million people watching my show. That was my failure. Yeah. That's all I got to say. Yeah. And if that's called failing. Yeah. Then so be it. Were the ratings as high as we would have liked? Of course not. And there were downturns that were very easily explainable. Um, and that's not to make excuses, but that's just the way television works. I mean, when we had, uh, you know, the Masters coverage um, uh, on our air that we would follow, which obviously is a boost, we didn't have Tiger. Right. Okay? Right. Not having yep. Tiger is big. Yep. yep. And that's you, very big. You, yep. Yeah. You know, and you see what the, the upswing uh, uh, of that was. 
And when we did have, you know, good ratings periods, nobody wrote about it. So it's like, all right, um, you're doing things, you know, in a in a vacuum. And especially when uh, it's the summer and it's slow. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into figuring out, you know, why a show is or isn't rating. You generally want to go year to year. Yep. And just to figure things out, you don't go day to day. Right. You don't go week to week. You go year to year because you want to try to attack what are the weak points? And as I said before, there were definitely certain th- certain things that we could have um, done better. But I just wholly reject this idea that, you know, we were uh, failures. A lot of people that took shots at us, took shots at the show, took shots at me, could never handle the kind of heat that we were, that we received in, in that spot. And most of them would have loved to have been in that spot to receive it. Yep. It's just like, okay. Um, and so I just, what allowed me to gain perspective about it was understanding, well, one, this is sports television. I'm not saving babies from burning buildings. Two, if the worst thing that's on my resume is that I made it 13 months as a sports center host, sign me up. Fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a detraction. Yeah. And, you know, we were able to do some really great, ridiculous television while I was there. So I'll always be proud of the work, the effort, the time, and the commitment um, that we put into it. So people can talk all the shit they want to talk. It's okay. <laughs> Mike and I are doing just fine. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, all of so so Richard Deitch on his podcast, I think he, he covered the, the ESPN era with you very well. I do recommend uh, anyone who hasn't listened to that podcast yet, go listen to it. Um, but uh, you're, you're now at The Atlantic. And to be clear, that's The Atlantic, not The Athletic. <laughs> and uh, and you also have your own production company. But, I, you know, I'm just wondering, like, do you have a game plan now? Like, are you about something different now? Like, do you have an agenda now, I guess is what I'm saying, that you can, now, that you can about, talk about? I'm about the things I've always, you know, um, that I've always been about. It's just that now the the entities that I'm choosing to work for, I think they speak just a little more closely to the type of content I want to create. It's no secret, and, um, you know, I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence by acting like they're not limitations when you're at ESPN. But these are limitations that you accept when you walk through the door and feel as if this is – if I have to accept this as a small limitation to do broader, greater work on an incredible platform like ESPN, I'll take that chance. That's fine. Right. But, you know, obviously there are inherent challenges that come with being uh, in business with the leagues that you cover. It inevitably is going to lead to some awkwardness, some um, conflicts, and some landmines. That's just how it – that's the price of doing business. And so now that I'm sort of free from those conflicts and the constraints that are, you know, natural that come with that, I probably, as people have noticed, feel a little freer to say things that I knew I couldn't say before. Not again, not because ESPN is trying to so suppress anybody. It's just, it's just what that comes with the outlet. It was no different than when I was in newspapers, and there were certain things you couldn't do or say as a newspaper writer and columnist either. It's just that obviously being at the Atlantic, it's a political magazine. Right. So yes, I am free to talk about politics. <laughs> They're not in business with any sport. They, you know, sports is something they do loosely, and they always cover from a, a cultural perspective, and they want to do um, even more of that, which is why they brought me in. So it's just the spaces that I'm roaming 
um, there's a different kind of freedom that comes with those spaces because the financial ties are different. Now, being in my own production company, you know, that's less about, you know, uh, sports and and sports media and that kind of thing, and that's more about me wanting to uh, create scripted and unscripted uh, content in television and film. And um, so that's sort of exercising a different part of my my creative, um, you know, brain. And uh, now that it, I'm sure people have noticed, uh, you know, in Hollywood, especially with the popularity of shows like Insecure and it, yep. and Atlanta and just, um, you know, so fresh off the boat, so many different types of, of shows, um, uh, especially about people of color, it seems like a great time now um, to be in that business because, you know, Hollywood is seeking uh, authentic voices. And um, so, you know, me and my production partner, we're looking to capitalize on that. So um, there's, I've always wanted and always will because writing is my first love, keep a foot in writing, which I have now. Um, And this content creation with the production company is just kind of another way to do that. Uh, But I'm not retired from television by any stretch. Um, There's some things and and some opportunities I'm sorting through, uh, both, uh, you know, in television and podcasting, and, and I'm just trying to figure out what makes the most, you know, sense for me as I build more of an a la carte career as opposed to being single-handedly with just one network and one entity. Yeah, I, I hope you can still figure out how to get into the uh, get into the ride home rotation every now and then so uh, so uh, Poppy can take advantage of your gullibility. <laughs> so I could be his latest sucker. Now, that, that's probably one thing I haven't, you know, probably discussed enough. I know a lot of people, when they saw the words, Whenever you see the words amicable parting, people instantly call BS. Yeah. And But it really was that with ESPN because I've been there 12 years. It's the best job I've ever had. It's the longest job that I've ever had. And built a lot of great relationships, have a lot of respect for the people, um, you know, who are there. And, you know, the relationship it just kind of run its, run its course. And there were more things they knew. There was a lot of stuff that I wanted to do, you know, outside uh, of the network. And they didn't want to, you know, limit me or, you know, make me feel as if I wasn't maximizing everything that I could do. So it truly was mutual. So along those same lines, because it was, I have an open door policy with them in terms of like, um, you know, I told them I'd still be interested in, in working with Ryan Home and, you know, popping up here and there. And they had no problem with that, you know, whatsoever. And as a matter of fact, um, my last day was on a Friday. I forget what, exactly what day it was. Uh, the producer of Around the Horn, uh, Aaron Solomon, he texted me and asked if I could be on the show Monday because <laughs> they had a panelist for, uh, fall through, which I totally would have done, which would have uh, been the greatest uh, gag in the world. Yeah, the, your first, like, your I, first I, day away from ESPN. You were right, ESPN. my first day away. I'm back on ESPN. <laughs> but I had a scheduling conflict, and I, I couldn't do it. Um, but I'm free to jump in around the horn rotation or the highly questionable, um, you know, rotation anytime. And Ryan Holm is, um, you know, he is, if he's not the best producer there, he's awfully close. And uh, he and I have a very good relationship. I consider him a friend and a mentor, and he's helped me grow so much in television that, um, you know, we both, you know, want to keep working uh, with each other down the road. 
Yeah. So uh, for the maybe the last five or ten minutes with you, I like to maybe just brainstorm a little bit. I'm a I'm a solutions oriented guy, but unfortunately the uh, the problems that uh, that you're kind of grappling with, uh, they're they're too complex for me uh, to, to, <laughs> to, to to figure out. And and uh, you know one of the things I noticed, and I'm going to be honest, I noticed it with myself first. Is like even with even with the Kaepernick stuff, uh, there was an element of it that I would I would call I mean it was separate from politics, separate from racism, separate from anything, and I would call it, uh, yeah, but it makes me uncomfortable and I don't want to deal with it, right? And so mm-hmm. um, I think that is the thing, right? So any of these topics they just they just naturally make people uncomfortable, even if they're not racist, and uh, and people have a natural aversion to being uncomfortable. And so it seems like it's just very hard, you know, to, to get anywhere because you're constantly up against that. So what's, what's a good way for a person like me uh, to try and attack that and even contribute a little bit? Well, you know, I, I, people, um, you know, when they talk about, when you mentioned, they talk about the, the things that make them uncomfortable. It, it's not necessarily, I don't, I do wonder is discomfort the, the actual word for it, or is it just, they don't care. And I guess now, and maybe it's just being pessimistic, and with this climate we're in, it certainly lends itself to pessimism. But I think a lot of it is just people, <clears throat> they just don't care. And, you know, if if Colin Kaepernick had been kneeling for domestic violence victims, I don't think that people would be blaming him, uh, you know, for NFL ratings yeah. as they did at some point, or they wouldn't, um, you know, certainly, you know, wouldn't look at him as, as a pariah. Um, because domestic violence is an issue we can all agree is bad, okay? Police brutality is a lot trickier. Now, on the face of it, it sounds like nobody should be pro-police brutality or pro-unchecked police authority. But the truth of the matter is, is that looking at the history of our country, and in particular examining the relationship with the police and people of color in those communities, is that the police have often been used as an extension of white fear and white supremacy. And that's the part no one wants to confront. Right. And, um, you know, you've seen it on the Internet whenever you see a black people getting the police called on them for simply breathing or sleeping or having a barbecue. Yeah, yeah, at, or, at a park. At a park or the latest one, babysitting. Um, <laughs> then that is what that is. And because the police have often been used to control, suppress, and police those communities, notice I didn't use the word serve or protect, but just as a body, this is not to say that police don't serve and protect those uniform, those communities, but the truth is is that their relationship has always been that. Um, that is not easy for people to accept because a lot of times with race, and especially race, gender, whatever, homophobia, whatever ism you want to throw in there, people are, they they deny or at least go out of their way to prove, disprove its existence because yeah. then that means they were complicit yeah. in some way, shape, or form. They know along the way they were complicit. They either saw it happening and didn't do anything or they benefited from it and didn't care. Yeah. And if that's the case and you are also an aider and an abetter, an accessory, you don't want to turn that light on you. So rather than um, try to see a, a different point of view and understand 
why these issues are so meaningful, not just for people of color, but for American citizens as a whole. We should not want people um, in our, uh, you know, we should not want people in our community who have a license to kill to have unchecked authority that does not hold them accountable. I would think we all would want that. But the fact of the matter is that requires a lot of work. And I less think it's about discomfort, and I think it has everything to do with the fact that people don't care. Um, People tend to not care until it hits your doorstep. And um, it's an unfortunate syndrome that we have in this community. Empathy should not have to be a result of it happening to you. You should be able to look at it and know that the difference between right and wrong but that is nevertheless where we are. Sports on some level has, not just with police brutality, has always been in that conversation. Yep. And, you know, it, it's almost like we're the same with uh, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali became a hero because history proved him right. A lot of people were late to that party. And that kind of tends to happen in this country. You know, I often point back to, uh, you know, after uh, Martin Luther King Jr. made his, his uh, you know, famous I Have a Dream speech, um, if the Pew Center polling showed that the majority of Americans disapproved of Martin Luther King Jr. and they disapproved of the Civil Rights Movement. So I say all that to say, as obvious as it was, that white and black people should not be drinking from separate uh, water fountains. Yep. In the moment, because it wasn't, quote, clear about who was right or wrong, instead people chose to double down on ignorance because that was easier. So, so uh, you know, from from a certain standpoint, and it might just be access to the Internet, it seems to me like the ignorance is greater than ever. And, and in this particular way, uh, people do this thing, and it's not just racism, but they, they do this thing where they want to act racist, but they don't want to be called racist, or they want to act sexist, yeah. or they want to act yeah. like an asshole without being called an asshole. All, all, all of that seems to me... To, you know, people, people, to, uh, people publicly just acting like hypocrites, that seems to be higher than at any point I can remember. And, I, I, you know, is, is that really true or am I just seeing a, a, a certain angle of the Internet? No, that is very, very true because, um, you know, uh, it, it, it is, as you said, it is amazing that for some people they feel like racist, being called a racist is more damaging and destructive and more appalling than the than actual racial slurs. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I have seen this countless times, you know, whenever somebody gets caught with their hand in the racism cookie jar, the first thing out of their mouth is, but I'm not a racist. It's like, but you are a racist. Yeah. And, you know, because we know what all comes with that, with that label, you know, and that is what makes human beings so frustrating and complicated at the same time, yeah. is they can exhibit the exact behavior that fits the exact... Uh, definition of what that is and will still deny it because what does it say if you really are that you don't want to deal with that like nobody is trying to deal with that and you you could talk I'm sure and you could talk to somebody who is in the Ku Klux Klan um, uh, and they would tell you they weren't a racist. <laughs> they would just tell you I'm, I'm serious they would I bet you and you you know if you've ever you know read some of um, not that anybody wants to spend any time reading any literature from the, the, the KKK, but just from a historical standpoint, they didn't consider themselves racist. They considered themselves preservationist, as in preserving white power, white superiority. They never saw it as anti, but pro, which is interesting. So it's amazing how you can spin things based off the fact that you don't want to confront something so ugly and dark because of what it actually says 
about your true nature, you know, as a person. I mean, I guess, you know, even though we're all searching for silver linings now, I guess you can say that the good thing about today is that it's out in the open. People feel more empowered to call things out. Social media has certainly helped to out a lot of people uh, and chastise a lot of people who frankly deserved it. Um, but I just, I guess just as an observer and a citizen in this society, I just, I don't know where we go from here. Well, I, I, I hope, uh, I hope all of us can, can figure it out together. Cause that, that's the, that's the most frustrating part. Like, I just don't know. And I have to admit that I don't know. I have no answers or no solutions and it's frustrating. Yeah. Cause you, you, when the solution isn't, uh, evident, um, you know, you, uh, you feel a little hopeless and I know, you know, every day, uh, not every day, but at least I should say most days, especially on, on social media, um, I, you know, I will have this feeling like the stupid people have won <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, they won today. Wow. This is amazing. Uh, yeah. But you know, every, every now and again, I'm reminded that, you know, they haven't won. And the good thing about this particular time is that I think people are feeling so much more activated and um, the anger and outrage is good if channeled into something that can exact change. And a lot of people who maybe were dormant three or four years ago are suddenly feeling inspired and feeling the urgency of having to speak out, you know, now. And although I don't necessarily consider myself an activist, part of the reason why it was important for me to leave ESPN is because of given the critical way in which sports is clashing and bumping up against and, you know, on a head-on collision collision course with social issues and politics in this moment, I would have felt as if I missed out if I didn't join this conversation in a meaningful way. Now that uh, I, I totally get it. So uh, do, do you have anything coming up uh, on the Atlant- Atlantic soon that uh, that you can plug? And uh, this podcast um, well, is probably not going to come out until Sunday. Okay, um, that's all good. But uh, I am actually in the process of crafting my very first column uh, for the Atlantic. Um, as of this taping, I filed it this morning and nice. just going through some edits. And um, uh, it's about Brett Kavanaugh. And yes, it oh. does relate to sports. Oh, very <laughs> nice. Well, 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 I'm very excited and I, I look forward uh, to reading that. And uh, I hope I get to talk to you again sometime and that I don't, I don't, you know, wait 18 months to reach out and, and have <laughs> you back on the podcast. Uh, but uh, I, it's been great to talk to you, and I, I really appreciate you joining the podcast. Well, you know, it was better um, uh, probably, you know, this way. And, uh, you know, um, you're, you're not done with me yet because i got some things maybe coming down the pipe that might maybe of, maybe of interest in terms of, of discussion. <laughs> I, I'm, so look, I'm, you know, and I, I probably edit this out of the podcast, but I, I haven't, I haven't figured out like, I, you know, I want to do something around all this, but I just haven't figured out what and how and like what I'm comfortable with and what I feel good with. And uh, I'm trying to figure all that out and it's not easy stuff. No, it's not. It's, it's difficult work and it's draining work uh, and it's emotional. And, uh, um, but you know, what I've tried to do is just, just to keep, you know, trying. There's something to be said for that in preserving your mental sanity if you keep trying. Uh, I, I hope you preserve your sanity. I hope, I hope we all do. And uh, thanks again for joining the podcast. All right. Thanks, Robert. 
Thanks again to Jamel Hill for joining the podcast. Her first piece for The Atlantic, What the Black Men Who Identify with Brett Kavanaugh Are Missing, is uh, now up at theatlantic.com, so be sure to check that out. And uh, coming up next is TV slash media reporter Oriana Schwint. We'll talk about uh, how the fall broadcast network TV season is going for those who have no NFL in their primetime schedules. And uh, we'll also talk about Oriana's new podcast, American Grift. If all goes well, that ought to be out sometime in the uh, October 17th to 19th window. Thanks for listening.